0: Hello and welcome to YHTV. This is Trinity of Life, Episode 28. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host of this program. Thank you so much for joining me again as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many, many modalities that help us find balance in our individual journeys. We're always excited to meet those of you who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Our special guest today is Dr. Nick Bitz. He is a Southern California licensed, board-certified naturopathic doctor. He practices family medicine at the Bernhoff Center for Advanced Medicine right here in Los Angeles, California. He specializes in integrative health care that combines the best of conventional and natural medicine to achieve optimal health and wellness for his patients. Today, he's going to be speaking on one of his favorite health-related topics, and one that absolutely has been inspiring me since he and I had a conversation a few weeks ago. It is called environmental medicine. I'm sure many of you have not heard of it before, hence why Dr. Bitts is going to share with us, I'm sure, just a little drop of that iceberg of knowledge that he has on environmental medicine. And I would like to honor um, our time right now with Dr. Nick Fitz. Hello, Nick. How are you?
1: Hi, Christina. Good to be here. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you you for joining us here on YHTV. We're very excited. At least I'm really excited to learn all about environmental medicine.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited to be here.
0: Great. So, Nick, let's start out a little bit about your history and how you actually came to be a naturopathic doctor
1: yeah sure i I grew up in Colorado uh you know I was always on the path to get my conventional traditional m d degree um, when I was actually researching uh, different schools, going through the interview process at various schools. Uh, I literally stumbled upon naturopathic medicine. Uh, it was something that I was never exposed to living in Colorado. Um, but I knew it was alive and well up in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Oregon, specifically in Washington. Um, so I decided to go out there. I interviewed at various places out there. Um, I, I discovered Bastyr University, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of five naturopathic medical schools in the U S. Um, and that's the path that I went for. Um, you know, for me, it made a lot of sense in that it was blending, uh, you know, my, my, my love of medicine with my love of nature. Mm Um, so for me, philosophically, it just made a lot of sense to go in that, to practice botanical medicines, uh, nutritional medicines uh, before doing pharmaceuticals.
0: I see. I see. So, so really, you, you learned both at the same time then. You went and had a degree bo- both in the pharmaceuticals as well as the naturopathic. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, naturopathic medical school is is pretty much the same. The first two or three years is pretty much the same as conventional medical school. So Mm -hmm. we're doing all of the the various ologies um, and we're doing a lot of the pharmaceutical training. So I actually can and do prescribe pharmaceuticals on occasion. But you know, I always use the analogy of a ladder. I always start on the lower rungs of the ladder mm-hmm. you know rather than starting um with high force pharmaceuticals, high force surgery let 's do some of the basic things let 's work with diet. Lifestyle botanicals, uh, these things that are tried and true and that have been used for thousands of years. Let's try those things first, and if need be, then we can move up the ladder and use some higher force interventions. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm well trained in the conventional sciences as well as the natural sciences.
0: Oh, fantastic! And um, so, when you graduate through that process, um, is it uh, to to get your naturopathic licensing or certification? Um, Do you also, is it a must that you have to learn the pharmaceutical side, like the allopathic side?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's part of our boards. So in order to become a board certified doctor, you actually need to become certified. Um, you need to achieve competency in pharmaceutical drugs, mm. um, and so we do a lot of pharmacology. Um, plus, in the clinic, you know, we 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 work with a lot of our mentors, a lot of physicians, uh, while we're going through our training. And in doing that, you know, we work with all of these medicines. Um, day in and day out, you know. Plus, you know, even if I'm not using some of the newer pharmaceuticals, I'm learning about them because patients are coming to me, and they're on these drugs. Mm-hmm. So I need to know how they're working in the body. I need to know what are some side effects, what are some nutritional deficiencies that they may be causing, and how maybe they they interact with some of the natural medicines that I'm implementing with my patients.
0: Right, right, wonderful. Oh, wow, that's exciting. So you have to keep up on both ends continuously. Oh, my goodness.
1: It's a lot, yes. Natural medicine isn't what it used to be. You really need to be, uh, you need to have one foot in both fields. And so that's why I specialize uh, in integrative medicine, which mm-hmm. is kind of the blending of the two, which is a growing field. And there are a number of traditional MDs as well as naturopaths that focus on integrative medicine specifically.
0: Mm. Now, now is, was there something in your past, like in your childhood, or do you have doctors in your family lineage? That sort of compelled you to come into medicine.
1: Well, a lot of nurses uh, in my in my family history. Um, I, you know, I think this all began when I was about twelve. You know, I was a very active young boy. Um, at the age of twelve, I actually fell out of a tree, um, and it, you know, which little boys do. Yeah. And uh, you know, I really I hurt my back uh, pretty pretty bad to the point where I was actually paralyzed for about five minutes. Um, you know, or thereabouts, who knows, but I, I could not move. And I remember just feeling mm. no sensation in my periphery, in my hands and my feet. Um, and, you know, slowly within, you know, the course of that day, I started getting sensation back in my body. Mm. And it was at that moment that I, I really kind of tasted my mortality. It's the first time that I, I, you know, I knew that I could become diseased, I could get hurt, all of these things. You know, as a twelve-year-old boy, you don't think about these things. Right. And so, from that moment on, really, it was my healing journey. You know, I went to a lot of traditional doctors, I went to chiropractors, I went to acupuncturists. Um, I really had to heal myself. I was in a lot of nerve pain, um, and nobody could help me. And so, what, for me, sorry,
0: what age were you? You were what age were you when you started to do all that? natural medicine, basically. Well,
1: it's again, it started at about age 12. I mean, that's really when I started having a lot of problems. Um, you know, I was playing basketball, um, mm-hmm. uh, competitive basketball touring around the U S and I started noticing that wow. I had, I had back pain after all my games and, you know, for a 12, 13, 14 year old boy, that's just not normal. So, you know, at that point, it, it, you know, nobody was really helping me. So my mom actually took me to an acupuncturist. Um,
0: uh-huh
1: which was profound. And at that point, you know, they taught me about diet. They taught me about, um, you know, the energy of the body. I could feel myself getting well after these various treatments. And so it really kind of turned me on to this more Eastern way of thinking about Mm. the body, an Eastern way of thinking about medicine and and really opened my eyes. And during the course of several years, um, you know, I I really did heal myself. You know, I started practicing yoga on a daily basis. Um, I got into Ayurveda, And body type diets. I got into botanical medicines. Um, And so it just became a way of living. And so for me to kind of practice this form of medicine that I practice now is really just an extension of my past and knowing that this stuff does work. I've healed myself. And now I've seen it in the clinic, you know, I see it. On a daily basis, I'm healing people um, day in and day out, people that have these chronic, irresolvable conditions that uh, most conventional doctors can't touch. You know, if you're doing things from a different perspective, a more Eastern perspective, a more holistic perspective, uh, people spontaneously get well.
0: Mm-hmm, hmm how magnificent. I mean, to me, it's um, so magnificent that your mother brought you to an acupuncturist when you were so young and at that time, you're living in Colorado, isn't that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Which you know, which was is fairly progressive. Yet yes. there's not a lot of natural medicine. At least there wasn't um, in in the 90s. Um, so that that was a big deal for me. You know, I was really thankful that there was one acupuncture school in Denver um, that we were able to go to. We had the resources to go to that. And now, you know, acupuncturists you can find in every yes. corner. Um, But even at that time, you know, I'm just, I was really thankful. I was thankful that my mom went out on a limb and said, we need to do something different. The status quo is not working. So let's just, let's just try something, anything in order to get you well.
0: Bravo. Oh, huge thanks to her, right? I mean, (laughs) she really really gifted you with more than just your, your physical being, but such a, she actually gifted you your future.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Without knowing it at
0: the time. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yes, magnificent. So now, so you, you've you become a naturopathic doctor now. You work with several people, uh, many people, I mean. And uh, of course, I think during our discussions, we say, you know, all medicine is ongoing. And and it's amazing how they're coming out with so many areas and uh, different names for medicine. And now you're, you're, you are, very, very excited about environmental medicine. can you share with us what that is? What does that mean to say environmental medicine
1: yeah, you know I think it's 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 an app title. Um, it really is bringing together a lot of different fields, uh, namely environmental science and medicine, and so it 's looking at how the external world, the environment is impacting the human body. Um, you know it really is a very vast uh, very complex, you know, it's just an emerging field. Um, so, you know, my intention today really is to keep things as very as simple as I can, as practical as I can, um, but just to give folks a taste of this vast field of medicine. Um, you know, environmental medicine, if you look at it from just a very basic um, uh, perspective, it's looking at how does the environment impact human health? And so a couple examples would be how how does the sun impact the human body? We know that UV radiation uh, impacts the sun. It activates cholesterol in the sun, which in turn makes vitamin D. And so we know that. That's environmental science. We know that the sun, the radiation, can actually cause a lot of skin cancers. That's environmental medicine. Um, we know that pollution from highways um, can can uh, negatively impact the lungs of a growing child, and it can create a lot of asthmatic conditions from a very young age into adulthood, so air pollution impacting the lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, one last example would be uh, mercury fillings. You know it still is a mm-hmm. common practice in dentistry to put mercury fillings um, in teeth. And we know through science, that mercury has a vapor. So whenever people are, uh, are drinking hot coffee, hot tea, uh, certain foods, the mercury in their teeth is giving off these vapor, and oh. you're inhaling these vapor into your body. And so people, generally speaking, that have more four or mo- <clears throat> excuse me, four or more amalgam fillings in their teeth have, on a daily limit, um, more mercury exposure than what is considered safe. Hmm. And so that is another example of environmental science. So it really is looking at all of these things um, that, uh, you know, it's looking at what is causing disease and what is causing health from an environmental standpoint.
0: Mm, mm. Wow. That's a a, really, that's so vast, isn't it? I mean, that is more than just, to, to take all those Minute pieces because they really are minute in the, in the whole scheme of things, uh, you could really go on for your lifetime trying to piece this together.
1: Absolutely, you know, and this, this is now becoming a subspecialty in medicine. Um, mm. There are only 500 medical doctors that specialize in environmental medicine, so it's one of the smallest specialties currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my opinion, it's probably one of the grow, uh, fastest growing specialties as well. There's a lot of interest in this just because there's a lot of research in this and there's a lot that we can do mm-hmm. from a medical standpoint to number one, prevent it. And then number two, to treat these environmental illnesses.
0: Right. Right. You know, it, it's, it's very interesting because, um, I was, uh, a child that grew up with a lot of illness and, um, uh, asthmatic and you know allergies and is like when they did those allergy tests then I don't know if they do it the same way where they prick your skin. Oh, well, yeah. I was like a big swollen lump. <laughs> it's like what am I not allergic to? You know um and you know then the film comes out about that boy in the plastic bubble and <laughs> things like that. I'm going, great yeah. you know yeah. am I gonna live my life continuous like this? Uh, but it was very interesting because Um, You know, people used to laugh at me um, because all my stuffed animals would be wrapped in um, like a very thin plastic, like the uh, laundry. uh, When you go to a a dry cleaners and they have those little plastic thin bags to cover your laundry, we would save those so that I could wrap my stuffed animals because I realized at a certain age where... I love to cuddle my stuffed animals. But every time I did, I would start sneezing. And of course, it's because of the dust. So I learned to really vacuum them up and then wrap them. So Every time I want to play with them, it would only be for a moment. And then they go back under the wrapping. And I could remember my, my mother's friends, of course, you know, the ladies, going, how can you let your daughter do this to her room? It's <laughs> all wrapped up. And she's going... Hell, hell it's helped her allergies yeah you know because you can just change the plastic each time because even dusting the dust cloth had to be damp if not that dust just would filter back up into the air land back on the counter or wherever it is you know those feather dusters that they used to use oh that was my worst nightmare <laughs> you know, it's like, who yeah. came up with this feather duster
1: yeah <laughs> right
0: so You know, it's things like that and showering at the end of the day, you know, from playing every day. And it's these habits that I've kept all my life. And people to this day still laugh at me. So can you tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think you're hitting on a lot of different points there that get me really excited. Um, I mean, number one, you're you're talking about, uh, you know, common low-dose, everyday exposures. People have these every single day. Um, These exposures are, you know, what people would consider benign, but they're cumulative. So, you know, people have uh, a a certain genetic propensity to have a a, a certain reaction to these things. Not everybody reacts the same way. You may be more hyper-reactive than certain individuals. Um, But I think this is an apt time to really bring up... um, an analogy that I like to use that, that really, I think, kind of sets the context for this talk. Um, whenever talking about environmental medicine, I like to use the analogy of the human body as a rain barrel. And Ooh. so a rain barrel essentially is just a big empty container, nothing more, nothing less. All it does is it just really kind of contains rainwater. So as rain kind of enters the barrel, it fills up, it fills up, it fills up, and eventually it tops off, until it can no longer carry any more rainwater. And then as we see it, you add a little bit more rainwater, a couple more drops, it starts to overflow. And so the human body is exactly the same way. And so we find that when you start adding toxins to the human body, it fills up. Mm. So you add pesticides, you add insecticides, you add heavy metals, air pollution, uh, water pollution, all these different forms of low-dose exposures, dust, All that's doing is adding to your daily dose, and eventually you get to a point where it actually fills up the human body, and it actually uh, overflows, and that's when it actually manifests as all Mm. of these symptoms. We see it as allergies. We see it as asthma. We see it as skin reactions. We see it as these chronic conditions that people have, and really all it is is just this exposure of these toxins filling up. body. It's Mm -hmm. overwhelming the body in terms of toxic exposure. Um, and so that is, I think, a very apt analogy to make. So you understand the human body is really just a reservoir for toxins. Mm. And we know that environmental toxins are at the root of every disease in the body. Um, in fact, the CDC, which is the uh, the government uh, public health organization, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, um, they actually stated specifically, virtually all human diseases result from an interaction of genes and modifiable environmental factors. So in other words, the environment is related to every single disease, according to the government. Wow. Um, that's a profound statement. It is. Um, and so I find that you, know, you always need to look at somebody's toxic load. And so when you as a child are reacting to stuffed animals, mm-hmm. that really means that your body, your rain barrel, is already full. It's overflowing. Mm-hmm. And so my goal as a doctor is, number one, to prevent future exposures, and number two, to make sure that we can decrease the level of toxins that are in your rain barrel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. it's that That's a really great analogy. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because it's simple. We all understand it. Uh, but as you were saying that, I thought to myself, A rain barrel. I wish more and more people kept themselves as hydrated (laughs) as a rain barrel,
1: right? It's true. It's true. And dehydration will confound all of your problems. People do not drink enough water. My recommendation um, uh, from a clinical standpoint is always to drink half your body weight in ounces per day. So if you weigh 150 pounds, that's 75 ounces of water filtered water per day
0: i hope everyone's listening to that i love you for saying that oh blessed be because people look at me and go i would drown if i drank that much water it's i'm not going, true. no and then and when you're ill to drink more because the body's like just seeping it out and flush it out of your system
1: Absolutely. Oh. And, and if you're not, if you're peeing every five minutes because you're drinking too much water, it means you're not retaining the water. So you need to add some kind of electrolytes or trace minerals to your water to make sure that you actually are retaining that in your tissues. And so that's another common problem. People are like, oh, I don't want to drink water because I have to get up to go to the restroom every five minutes. Right. Add electrolytes.
0: Right, right. Yes. I, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you so much. That in itself is just worth you don't know how much that's worth to hear that from you.
1: Yeah, it's very basic, but it's but it's totally true. And not and not everybody's doing it. It's amazing, it's amazing to me.
0: It is amazing, right? It's yeah. like they go, Well, I'll drink tea, I drink coffee, I drink juices. And it's like, no, yeah. just water. Just yep. water. And it's like, oh, I can't do that because it tastes awful. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's very interesting. And I go add something to it like electrolytes without the sugar and just slowly, or just a squeeze of lemon or a squeeze of orange juice into it. And that's it. Just start. And the body will just naturally kick in and kind of go, I want it. I want it. You know, and you'd be surprised, right? It's so simple.
1: It's so simple, you know, and, and, and I don't know if we'll touch upon this later, but um, again, I think that water is one of the, the biggest exposures that people have on a daily basis. And so, you know, obviously filtered water is is super important. A Brita filter is absolutely worthless. Um, you know, they're cheap. They're a dime a dozen. Really what that thing is designed to do is to remove chlorine. Um, And chlorine, as we know, is a universal disinfectant. Um, It is a very toxic molecule, but it does kill uh, all the bacteria, all the viruses that are in the water. And it tastes horrible. So Brita removes (laughs) the chlorine. um, So it improves the taste, but you can actually buy really good quality water filters that makes water taste amazing. And mm. so, people that have trouble drinking water because of taste, I'd highly recommend getting a really high-quality water filter mm-hmm. uh, to improve the taste as well as to pull out all the contaminants.
0: Mm. Mm, wonderful. Um, that's a that's a great uh, topic right now um, about water because here, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, in Los Angeles, we have, uh, would you say, a very high? Um, is it calcium or or mineral buildup in our water system?
1: Exactly. Right
0: and and how does that impact our bodies like like you know i have a water filter but i also buy my water from a place that has a major filtration system right <clears throat> right so so it depends on what i'm cooking and what i'm using it for drinking or cooking with etc what what about those chemicals people say our la water is fine it's been filtered through the system fine what has been your studies?
1: Well, I mean, that, again, that's a vast field. Uh, we find that there are pharmaceutical drugs in our water um, that you can't filter out. Um, there are all sorts of hormones in the water. There are still all sorts of contaminants that are in the water. Um, you know water unfortunately is getting dirtier and dirtier, um, mm-hmm. and unfortunately uh, america 's water is uh, is not as palatable nor as healthy as it can or should be. Um, so I, you know, you really need to take all precautions. I think that having some elements that are in there, some calcium or magnesium or certain minerals, I think to some extent are healthy because you need those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would really, again, highly recommend just buying your water filter or buying your water from somebody that filters it and making sure that you're getting the cleanest water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just up in the Pacific Northwest and they, they, Uh, They claim to have the cleanest water in all of America. Um, Even in my hotel, the water was palatable. It didn't have the chlorine taste. Mm -hmm. Um, It was quite good. But even still, you know, even if you're not pulling out the chlorine or even sorry, even if you are pulling out the chlorine, you don't know what you're getting, you know. For instance, homeopathic remedies, when you put those into a water system, they magnify on an exponential scale. And so they actually become more energetic, more powerful, the more diluted they become. And so that's something that's very interesting, you know, when people throw away their homeopathics or flush them down the toilet. Um, It's similar to, you know, when people actually were threatening to put LSD in the water system in the 60s and the 70s. You know that that would have been a big deal, but it is a big deal in terms of the pharmaceuticals we're getting. People are getting medicated. They're finding uh, Prozac in our water, you know, which is changing our 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 brain chemistry just by drinking water. Um, So Wait, 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 wait a
0: minute. How how does that happen? That that if someone's flushing the water down a toilet, uh, the, the medication down a toilet. How is it that they're, when you say that they're finding Prozac in, all, in our water, not our drinking water?
1: Our drinking water, yep. And so, you know, you, you can, um uh, I mean, I'm hoping reports.
0: that they're not refiltering our toilet water for drinking water.
1: <laughs> no, they're not. Um, but it's, it's just as bad. And this is another environmental topic that is dear to my heart. Um, I live in Santa Monica. And uh, the Santa Monica Bay is pristine. It's beautiful. However, um, you know, one mile—I'm sorry, five miles off of the Santa Monica Bay—is where all of the sewage from Los Angeles goes, and they dump it right into the, the Santa Monica Bay. Oh no. um, So that's six thousand miles of of uh, sewage tubes ending in the Santa Monica Bay. And they don't so think
0: it's going to wash tons. in with the tides.
1: They they claim that they don't, Um, and it's to me it's it's a big problem. I don't swim in the ocean um, off the coast of California. I don't blame you. (laughs) But I but I don't, and it's 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 disgusting, and it's it's a problem. It really is a problem. You know, I did my residency in Vale, Colorado, and Vale was having a lot of problems with parasites in their drinking water. So. Even if you're filtering out your water, it's going, it's being treated, you're not, getting, you're not removing all the parasites. They're finding parasitic infections left and right throughout the U.S. because of clean uh, drinking water. So there's a lot going on with our drinking water. People need to be very proactive about what they're putting in their body.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's, that's very, very good to know. And, and about our ocean, too. And our, our you know those of you who live here in Los Angeles or Southern California, that's really good to be aware of. Five miles is not that far, not with the way water moves, you know.
1: You know, roughly 75% of our sewage is not properly treated. It's still full of toxins, chemicals, bacteria like E. coli. Um, and you know, from 1940 to 1970, the factories were pumping PCB and DDT, um, into the Santa Monica Bay. There are actually pictures you can find online of a big sewage pipes dumping out into the Santa Monica Bay. And so they're actually finding there are shelves of DDT in the, in the bottom of the ocean. So when people are swimming, they're surfing, they touch the bottom of the ocean all of these chemicals are coming up in the water and people are drinking those chemicals. Mm. And so these chemicals are banned because they're carcinogenic. They cause cancers. But yet they're everywhere. They're everywhere in the environment. Um, Mm. So it's really important to really just be cautious about whatever water source that you're in, whether you're drinking it, whether you're swimming in it, whatever it may be.
0: Right, right, right. And and it's so interesting that you said that because I I do remember I had a trip in Tahiti one day and uh, quite a while back and we were just swimming off You know the 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 in the bay, just off the side of the hotel there. And I know at that time, my husband came out after the first day really sick, like and there was like there was no reason for it. And he came out; it was a really bad sick. Like he was like almost like the flu with an eye infection. It's like what is going on? It just like came on, within hours of coming out of the water. And it was, mm, that doesn't look good at all. I mean, we chose not to swim in that area anymore, just in case we were wondering about the runoff from the hotel after that, you know. But.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah a lot of my surfer friends, uh, they go up to Malibu because it's considered the cleanest. Uh, but yet a lot of them, I would say almost all of them, have had staph infections.
0: Oh, from no. Surfing
1: water up there. And that's considered, again, the cleanest water area in Southern California. So.
0: Oh, boy. OK. OK, people who surf, be very aware <laughs> of where you're surfing because you are intaking that water up your nose and your sinus. It's sitting in your cavities for a long time. Oh, that's pretty wretched. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh, so, um, Nick. OK, so so we've touched. I mean, I this I'm I know that this is like part one of many parts and hopefully you'll enjoy enjoy spending some time with us because I, I do believe you are just an iceberg of information that, that is get just overflowing. You know, you're like that barrel of information. that's over- <laughs> Um, what other, um, simple, simple environmental items or things that, that you can share with us?
1: Well, you know, I I think it's it's good. I like to talk about prevention. Um, You know, from a clinical standpoint, I'm very proactive and I treat these things very actively. However, to really identify certain exposures, uh, certain toxicities, it really takes a trained uh, physician or a healthcare practitioner. So I think for... Uh, the layperson, it's really important to talk about prevention first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to talk about indoor pollution. Um, uh, the research is showing that indoor pollution is actually a much larger issue than uh, outdoor pollution. Ah! <laughs> Um, It really is important to really look at your home environment. And I find that people really don't look at their home environment until they have kids, until they have little toddlers crawling around. At that point, they maybe think about, oh, maybe we shouldn't be using bleach all over our floors. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. maybe we should, you know, be vacuuming more, dusting more. But otherwise, people really don't look at these things. And so, you know, again, I I, I like to make very simple recommendations around the house One of the first things that I like to recommend is a a, a no shoes policy at home. Um, And, you know, I find that taking your shoes off at your door is a very simple thing. Uh, people find it very foreign, but if you're a world traveler, you find that most people overseas or abroad—that's just commonplace. Mm-hmm. So intuitively, they understand that in America, they just don't. For whatever reason, people carry their shoes in their bedroom, um, and I think that you know, removing your shoes at your doorway really is like washing your hands. Yeah, um, you know, after using a public restroom. You know, it's—it's it's, everybody knows they should do that, and in fact, there are studies that show that ninety ninety-six percent, I believe, of shoes are contaminated with E. coli
0: and E. coli
1: is the best indicator of fecal contamination. And so, you know, public restrooms, dog poop, bird poop, all of these things are on our feet. And so people are carrying these droppings on our shoes. And so it's kind of disgusting.
0: Oh, it is.
1: And, you know, we're tracking in heavy metals from the external environment. There was a study done in 1991 called the Doormat Study. And it actually showed that shoes are the number one source of lead in the home. And so if you can actually, just by simply removing your shoes at the door, you can remove the lead in your home by 60%. Wow. Which is profound. And so we know that lead is a neurotoxin. It impacts toddlers and infants in particular but it impacts adults as well so it affects learning ability brain growth um, hearing ability, um, all of these different behavioral components. It's, it's really important to remove lead. And so we carry lead in from the soil, from the external world, and then we track it into the home and it never leaves. Mm. And so there's heavy metal all over. So for, you know, very basically the, one of the first things I recommend is just take off your shoes. That's one of the best things you can do to make sure that you're not adding more toxins to your barrel. Mm, very mm-hmm, simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I can keep going. I, you know, there are, you can really go and look at each room and say, what can we do in this room to really make sure that we're preventing these low, everyday low dose exposures? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I recommend um, all of my patients, in particular the, the patients that have multiple chemical sensitivities, to create one room in their house that is considered the safe zone. So it's a clean room. It's 100% clean. It's free of toxins. And I usually recommend that to be the bedroom. So the bedroom is a sanctuary. You know, Yay! You like that. <laughs> a very clean, loving place. Um, so you know, it's it really starts with, uh, in my opinion, it starts with the mattress. So if you look at the mattress, uh, the research is just astounding. Um, mm. This is where we can talk about dust mites a little bit. Uh, dust mites are everywhere in the home environment. Um, they are the predominant feature that is found in dust that's floating around the house. Um, they are eight-legged arachnids, meaning that they're the same class as spiders. Um, they oh, are absolutely lordies. frightening to look at and they're uh, microscopics. So you can't see them with the naked eye, but they're everywhere. And in particular, they're in mattresses. They love dark, warm, humid environments. And so when people have these standard mattresses, they just tuck into the mattresses. And then at night, or whenever people are laying there, they actually come out and they feed on your dead skin cells. And so they actually feed on human dead skin cells. Um, And their droppings are actually highly allergic. We find that people that have genetic susceptibilities react to their droppings. And so they leave droppings all over your house, all over your mattresses, all over your pillowcases. Um, And it's a big (laughs) deal. People that have genetic susceptibilities, you being one of them, Christina, um, need to remove dust mites. And so looking at mattresses is one of the best things that you can do. Mm -hmm. Mattresses actually. collect moisture. And so 25% of your moisture that you breathe off or that your body gives off while you're sleeping yes. actually goes directly into the mattress. So moisture actually proliferates bacteria, viruses, fungus. Mm-hmm. If you cut open a standard mattress, um, you will find that it's it's disgusting. It's usually full of water. It's brown. It's full of all sorts of organisms that people live with year after year after year.
0: Oh, and mattresses are <laughs> the gas. And everyone's like fretting about bed bugs these days. And I'm thinking, um, even if you don't have the bed bugs, you got to yeah. listen to this. Wow.
1: So you have bigger problems and, uh, all mattresses are essentially dipped in flame retardants. Um, yes. and flame retardants are nasty. And so every mattress in the U S has to pass, uh, which is called the cigarette test. So they actually put cigarettes on it to see if it'll cause a fire. If it causes a fire, it doesn't pass. In California, where, where we live, uh, it actually has to pass an open torch, an open flame test. And so they actually have much higher standards. And so they add more chemicals there. Um, the government actually ha- creates the cocktail that they actually put on mattresses. Um, all mattress companies have to sign an NDA, which means a non-disclosure non-dis- uh, agreement, uh, basically telling the government that they will never test uh, their mattresses for their chemicals, uh, for what chemicals the government is putting on their mattresses, um, and so it's a very wow. uh, government-driven uh, process uh, to prevent fires and to make sure that you're not creating uh, deaths. And oh. so, yes, some mattresses do start on fire. Um, there was that was you know in the past, but now uh, that really doesn't seem to be the case. Um, you know, I would really recommend that people buy. Uh, fire alarms and that they buy organic bedding. So you can buy a latex mattress, which uh, prevents dust mites, prevents moisture, and is doesn't have to use uh, the, the flame retardants. Um, so you can buy a latex bed or you can buy an organic cotton bed and use a wool topper. So there's ways around this to prevent those three exposures.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So, so the, a latex bed, basically, I, when you say latex, something like a tempur or something like that is all foam?
1: Well, a tempur is not necessarily, um, you can buy, latex essentially is just rubber. It comes from the rubber tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it always sounds weird when I recommend that, uh, but uh, latex is completely natural. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain people that have latex allergies. Mm-hmm. Um but we find that latex beds, generally speaking, do not um, uh, make these latex sensitive individuals react, mm-hmm. especially if you put a topper on it, whether it be a cotton topper or a wool topper. Mm-hmm. It gives you a little buffer so you don't react to it.
0: Mm-hmm. At, at least your skin and your body's not intaking all those wonderful chemicals.
1: Absolutely. And
0: do the bugs love the latex? <clears throat>
1: nope. Uh, they are absolutely, 100%, 100%. Uh, dust mite and bug free so they prevent that they're actually antibacterial antiviral antifungal anti dust dust mite the issue here is that they're a little bit more expensive and they're a little bit harder to find Mm. so you need to do your research but find an organic bedding store a latex bed store and really go that route i would highly recommend since you're spending you know roughly one third of your lifetime in your bed yes to really make sure that you're spending some money on that. These beds do last longer. So they do last uh upwards of 10 to up 15 years. So you're spending more money up front, but you're not getting those toxic exposures every night.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. So so back to these little dust mites?
1: <laughs> yes. That is
0: all around us every day cuz when we look at dust is it's everywhere. I especially um so you're one what I've heard you say is Keeping the windows closed all day is not a good idea because the toxins can't leave. And there's, it's more toxic within the house than outside, right? <clears throat> so it's good to air out your home. It's good to have the windows open. But, you know, there is also the belief that because the windows are open, the house gets dusty very quickly. So does that mean there's more dust mites coming in?
1: <laughs> no. Generally speaking, um, dust is caused by shoes. Um, there are actually estimates that up to ninety-eight percent of the dust in your house is uh is from shoes. And so again, removing your shoes at the door will prevent these dust forming. And dust is, is just really a uh a, a mixture of a lot of things. Dead human skin, dust mites, uh heavy metals, pet dander, whatever it may be. Um and so uh, you know you you can decrease that by just keeping your house clean. Opening your windows is really gonna create airflow. It's gonna help decrease the dust in my opinion. Mm-hmm. depends on where you live. Um, but you can also, if you want to, you can just put a dehumidifier in your room um, and dehumidifiers. Um, If you keep a a room at 30 to 40% humidity, Mm -hmm. um, that actually is considered the single best thing you can do to remove dust mites in your house or in your bedroom. And so Los Angeles is actually, on average, about 70% humidity. So you need to cut the air by about half Hmm. uh, of water. And so use a dehumidifier is one way to get around that, to decrease the dust mites and to decrease the dust in your house.
0: Wow, that's very interesting. Hmm. So uh, these uh, dust mites. I'm caught on these dust mites because it, it, it's, <laughs> it's like I'm not a great spider fan. Of course, I'm not a great dust fan, as you know. Of me covering up my dolls and everything every day. Uh, the the shoe policy. That's great. I love it. You know, being Asian or part Asian. I I just love the fact that everyone take off your shoes. I you know, I I have always believed in that. Of course, because back to allergies, back to the way of life and the the background I come from. Um, uh, The other thing that that I truly, truly live by is before even entering my bed, when you said that the bedroom is your sanctuary, the bedroom, I believe, is the same thing. It's like, this is my temple. This is where my body rests. This is where it's the end of the day. Energetically, I like it balanced, um, clean, I like it so that when my body is resting, when it's the time of healing, that's when my windows are open big and wide when I'm sleeping. I get the air from the outside and it can just rest, really rest in peace. So to say, you know, as clean as it can be. So apart from keeping the windows open, no shoes. Um, I I really believe because uh, um, an allergist actually taught me when I was really young. To shower every day before getting into your bed, because you know people who eat in bed, people who do those things, you know it gets you're sleeping it at the end of the day. And as you're saying, we're spending a third of our life in bed, and so you know that shower, the washing off all the toxins I'm bringing home every day from being outside in the car, in the rest of the house, cooking, you know the oils, you know just the sweat. Living here in Southern California, I don't know how anyone can get in bed after a day out here. And it's having, true. you know, a hundred degree temperature, you're not gonna shower before you get into bed. That's like yeah. almost disgusting, you know, to me as an individual. So Yeah, I mean thoughts? and
1: you could you could certainly just wash your sheets every week too. Be very diligent. 140 degrees kills dust mites. Um, and just you know, it, it helps just keep everything fresh and clean. So that's another way around that. If you do if you shower in the morning, I think that's a great advice to shower at night. And, you know, just a simple, just to wash off energetically, physically, wash off your day. Um, so I think that's that's a great advice. Um, however, when you look at the, the the bathroom, I mean, that's a whole other area that that. <laughs> You know, people spend a lot of time in, and I really recommend everybody get a shower filter, um, you know, to remove the chlorine. And so chlorine, Mm -hmm. again, is a universal disinfectant. It's used, you know, for good reason in our water supply, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's actually – We know um, it actually is vaporized in the shower. So if you can actually remove chlorine, which has essentially a free radical, uh, uh, an unbound electron molecule that when that enters your lungs, enters your body, it's a free radical and it creates a lot of oxidative damage. Mm. So if you get a filter, you can actually capture that. So that's a really important thing. A lot of people have um, vinyl curtains. Which are called p v c curtains they're kind of old school curtains that have that sh- that that curtain smell um remove those, and so those are full of of chemicals that off gas with heat hmm. um we we so that's that's a very big thing and then cosmetics people are adding cosmetics on a daily basis. Um, It's a very big deal. You know, if you're adding lotion onto your skin day in and day out, the lotion doesn't just shed off. Your body has to absorb that into its bloodstream, Mm -hmm. process it, metabolize it, and then excrete it. So it's just adding to your toxic load. Mm. And so be very mindful about what you're using on your body in the bathroom, you know, whether it's shampoos, whether it's soaps, um, there is a website that I love to reference. Um, it's the environmental working groups website, um, ewg.org, backslash skin deep. Mm -hmm. So just Google skin deep, um, And it's, it actually will tell you how toxic on a scale of zero to 10, pretty much every body care product is, um, every ingredient is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, for instance, use, um, very low toxic, uh, chemicals, you know, rather than using lotions at this point, I use coconut oil Mm. on a daily basis because that's a food grade. You can eat that (laughs) and your body knows what to do with it. But if you're using, um, you know, Vaseline intensive care—that is roughly an eight on the toxic scale. Oh. It's full of mostly unpronounceable ingredients that your body has no idea what to do with. Yeah. And so, be mindful of that. Um, you know, again, the bathroom, the bedroom. We could look at the kitchen. We could look at your floors. We could look at your air. I mean, there's there's so many different things to look at. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention too, if you allow me, Christina, is, um, uh, the, the new compact fluorescent light bulbs that, that have the spirals.
0: Oh yes, please. And I'd so like those to...
1: are everywhere right now with the green movement. Everybody thinks that they're, we're doing mm. a service to the environment using these, uh, very efficient light bulbs, uh, But unfortunately, um, they're very toxic. Um, Hmm. There's roughly four milligrams of mercury in every uh, 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 CFL, uh, compact fluorescent light bulb. And so when those things break in the house... Or when you throw them out in the trash can, what you're doing is you're exposing everybody to more mercury. Mm. Um, and so it's really uh, it's important that if you have those in your home, if they break, make sure you use all the precautions necessary with gloves, uh, even eyewear if you can, to make sure that you're not getting those mercury exposures. And then when they, uh, when they, when they fade away and, um, and they burn out, you need to make sure that you're recycling them. And so actually don't throw them away. Take them to uh, Ace Hardware, uh, Home Depot, um, those type of places. They actually will recycle them properly, and they'll do it free of charge. So that's a very important thing that I think a lot of people don't know, you know, right. and they're full of mercury.
0: Well, you know what, um, Nick? I think two years ago, a family member of mine had um, emailed me a piece that uh, is like the Canadian 60 Minutes or... So, you know, com- comparable to the U.S., but it was a Canadian piece done on those bulbs. And um, they were mentioning about how much mercury wa- was in each of the bulbs, and also uh, how people were affected by them, you know, actually using them, not even breaking, but using them as a light source. Wow, Something was happening, I don't know, through the eyesight. People were having migraines, Uh, This one person's body felt like it was from the migraines. The body started to like have these uh, sort of like seizures. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And um, finally, uh, someone, one of their doctors mentioned, you know, do you have these light bulbs? And they said, of course, you know, it saves energy, blah, blah, blah. They actually removed those light bulbs and went back to the old fashioned ones and all the symptoms disappeared. Yeah. And an, another person, you know, who had those efficient light bulbs in their stables, you know, where their horses were, and that was the only place that she had them, so every time she went in to work with her horses, she started getting migraines and she couldn't figure out why. Same thing. The minute she changed those light bulbs out, she was fine. So it it almost goes beyond, you know, you were saying something about the heat, in our body, you know, releasing the mercury in our mouths, you know, if we have those amalgam um fillings. I mean, I wonder if it's the same thing when these bulbs are heated up to a certain temperature that it's releasing mercury in a different source or chemistry-wise that is could affect the human body.
1: Uh, you know, that's a good point and it's it's plausible, you know. Mm-hmm. Mercury pretty much will go through anything. It's a fat-soluble substance that Uh, Will go through all barriers. I mean, it's really uh, kind of an amazing uh, uh, ingredient. You know, it really is an elixir um, if used properly in the Mm -hmm. Ayurvedic tradition, but it really is probably the most uh, toxic uh, component that's out there. And we really, I don't think we understand it. You know, Uh, we don't understand how it's affecting us uh, that well. Um, One thing that I wanted to mention is high fructose corn syrup.
0: Um, oh. there,
1: there are two studies that show that high fructose corn syrup is laden with mercury. Um, and are I actually. Are you wrote serious? It, it's shocking. And so, especially given how ubiquitous high fructose corn syrup is in the American diet and in little children's diet, which pound for pound, they're much more susceptible to the neurotoxic effects of mercury. And so, it's just how they process it, it's how they manufacture it. Uh, the byproduct and the, the residue is mercury. And so they've actually tested um, upwards of 50% of all of uh, uh, brand name products where high fructose corn syrup is the number one or number two ingredients right. um, actually tested positive for mercury, um, which is shocking. I actually wrote an article for the, the Veil Daily. Uh, several years ago when I did my residency in Vale, and uh, the next day after it got published in the newspaper, the, uh, the, the, I forget what exo- uh, the name exactly, but it was something to the extent of the American Corn Refinery Association. So it was one of those big associations that was backing corn called me, and they actually asked me to retract my article. And I said, you know, I I have every right to report science. That's all I'm doing. There are two scientific studies that I actually cited that stated that as a fact. And Hmm. I realize that you guys are trying to. Um, you know, protect your image, and you guys are all about making money. I understand that, but people need to understand this. They need to understand that mm-hmm. that, that high fructose corn syrup not only is put people at risk for type two diabetes, obesity, these types of things, but it's actually a, a source of mercury, which is a very, very big wow. deal.
0: That that little piece I didn't know that it had a high source of mercury, and and. What surprises me is that the FDA hasn't removed it.
1: Well, and it's still commonplace in, used in dentistry. You know, the the American uh, Associate Dentistry Association has not taken a stance against mercury. I mean, in order for folks to actually uh, use a more holistic, natural dentist, they need to seek out a biologic or a biological mm-hmm. dentist, um, and they're very hard to find. They're very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mercury still used left and right. I think if they actually, uh, took a stance against it, there would be a lot of lawsuits. There would be a lot of problems, um, which is probably why they don't.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, a question came up. Um, it is, uh, what would be, what would be an essential supplement you find most people need?
1: Oh boy. Um, that's a large conversation. I, I love supplements. You know, I've worked in the dietary supplement industry for several years. I give out dietary supplements, um, physician grade dietary supplements, on a daily basis. Um, you know, I, I give out what I what I call my basic treatment guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that there are several things that people need: probiotics. Um, You know, digestion is the root of all health. We know this from uh, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, naturopathic medicine. All of these holistic uh, systems of medicine believe that digestion is the root of all health. Mm -hmm. And probiotics, in my opinion, is the single most important thing that you can do for digestive health. Um, So that's part of my basic treatment guideline that I pretty much give out to every patient. I also give out uh, omega-3s, whether they be from fish, whether they be from algae, or whether they be from flax. Um, People need their omega-3s. We're not getting them in a diet. Um, Omega-3 insufficiency or deficiency can cause a lot of problems uh, in the body. And so those two things I find um, are absolutely essential more and more, I'm finding that people need a good quality multivitamin. Um, Not the kind of uh, uh, mass market multivitamin that you find at Walgreens, but really um, only the multivitamin that you can get that's a doctor-grade multivitamin. Mm -hmm. Even a lot of the health food multivitamins are below par, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't find them to be useful at all. So they need to be using the right kind of ingredients, and you need to be using the right kind of dose. And Mm -hmm. I think the problem with herbs and supplements in general is that people are using the wrong kind um, for too little time and they're using them in in too low of a a dose. And so they need to be dosed high. That Mm -hmm. is how you get a therapeutic effect uh, from my clinical perspective. And so again, the multivitamins that I give out clinically are anywhere between six and eight pills per day. Mm -hmm. It's very different Mm -hmm. than uh, a one per day multivitamin. A one a day. Yeah, you know, and I find that it just doesn't cut it for most people. Our soils are deficient in nutrients, um, and in turn, our food is deficient in nutrients. And by and large, people are overfed, overweight, and undernourished. And we're finding that uh, across the board, people are deficient in a whole host of essential nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, vitamin D. You know, 70% yes. seventy to 80% of people are deficient in vitamin D.
0: Yes, I, I heard that um from many people recently, especially women. Well, maybe it's because you know women are very they they, they tend to keep up their yearly um, annual physicals and everything. And so many were saying that they were being tested for vitamin D deficiency. In this just this past year and a half, really, that it was yeah. is this huge push.
1: Huge push. You know, I last uh, year where I did my medical training is up in Seattle, and in my clinical training, we were testing everybody. And I would find that nearly 90% of people that we tested were deficient in vitamin D, um, which, you know, is not unheard of. I'm finding that even in California, it's more the rule rather than the exception. And mm-hmm. um, I'm happy that it's become more commonplace. I find more and more conventional doctors are actually testing vitamin D yes. um, Again, studies showing that even Hawaiians, 50% of Hawaiians, which spend you know all of their time outdoors in the sun, are deficient in vitamin D. And so there's a lot, much there's much more happening than just sun exposure. Why people are deficient in vitamin D.
0: So what um, with the omegas that you were talking about, the omega three, uh, do you have a preference? Because of course there is a controversy about the omega three from fish oil because of the mercury that our fish tend to have these days and, you know, this present time in the 20th century. Um, Do you prefer the, is there any preference when you're guiding your patients?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, it's hard. So this is a very large topic, but I, you know, I'm not, um, I don't shy away clinically from using fish oil. Um, Fish oil, as you know, has EPA and DHA, which are the two most highly researched types of omega-3. There's there's all kinds, hundreds of different kinds of omega-3, but mm. those are the two sources of those types. You don't find that in plant-based omegas, such mm. as flax, um, which has ALA. Um, the body converts it slowly to the EPA, but it generally takes about 11 enzyme uh, reactions in order to get there. And we find mm. that most people are deficient in liver enzymes to convert it. And so... Um, only about 10% of flax gets converted into those active components. Wow. And so for that reason alone, um, I I don't shy away from giving people fish oil. I know Mm -hmm. that there are some environmental issues around sustainability of fish oil, um, but uh, they're finding that the people that are really harvesting fish right now are doing a better job of making sure that the numbers are okay and that they're doing it uh, in a sustainable manner. That's not destroying the the, the ocean ecosystem. Uh, The newest type that I'm actually starting to get into, which is more expensive, is algae-based omega-3s, and that has DHA. So it is a a non-fish type of omega-3, which actually has one of those components that I was talking about that's found in fish oil so it's unique it's a little bit more expensive it's harder to find, but I'm starting to give that out to folks that are vegan that are vegetarian um, folks that uh practice ahimsa, which is you know the yogic virtue of of non harming um you know it's so I think that might be something that we tap into in the future, but clinically, i'm not using that for people that have a lot of inflammation that have cardiovascular disease um, that have uh, a lot of pain. So these things that we actually need to get results from, um, you need to use high doses of fish oil, um, mm-hmm. for better mm-hmm. or for worse. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, um, and vitamin D, what would you say is the best form? Because I, I've, I noticed in the last, um, Eco West show that everyone was coming out with, you know, vitamin D supplements for children, for adults, you know, it's like everything is vitamin D. So
1: Yeah. So the the most active form is vitamin D3, which is known as uh, cholecalciferol. Um, You want to avoid uh, vitamin D2. Um, You want to use vitamin D3. Um, You can get organic, quote-unquote, vitamin D that comes from either mushrooms um, or certain types of algae. Um, But most vitamin D comes from uh, essentially lanolin, which is uh, lamb's wool. And so that's where we're predominantly getting our vitamin D that we're using left and right. So it is—it's more or less natural. It's naturally occurring. Um, I'm starting to recommend larger doses. So I recommend somewhere um, definitely larger than a thousand IU's per day um, is recommended. Uh, I'm starting to recommend more and more five thousand IU's. And for people that are that are sick, acutely sick, I usually give fifty thousand IU's. Mm-hmm. For a short period of time, you know, maybe about five days, mm-hmm. just do about 50,000 IUs of vitamin D. It helps to really uh, boost the immune system, decrease the viral and bacterial load in the body.
0: Wow. Those are high doses.
1: Big doses, bigger yes. than people are accustomed to.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I, I hope uh, that's answered your yeah. question. Uh, <clears throat> So we're we're sort of coming to, well, we have actually passed the top of our hour, but you know, we tend to go overboard sometimes anyways, when uh, and in this situation, I, I think it's um we we love the topic. I mean, I'm I'm it just moves so beautifully. Um uh, Nick, how how what would a person expect when they come to visit you? When they come and make an appointment, what what do they expect? Because I have a lot of people that say, well, what does a naturopath do? What um, it, are they like a regular doctor? I mean, you know, can you just kind of describe to us what a first visit would be like?
1: Sure. You know, every naturopathic doctor is, is different. Um, that's what's beautiful about naturopathic medicine. It's a vast field and everybody is different. So if somebody is going to see a naturopathic doctor, just understand their philosophy, understand uh, their toolkit um, understand their success rates that they've had with your specific condition. Um, understand all of that. And, you know, really is about a relationship. So first and foremost, make sure that you jive with your doctor. Make sure you guys have a relationship. You guys get along. You can feel heard. Um, and I think that's really important, uh, that the relationship aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I work with patients. Uh, the first time I see them, I, I work with them for 60 to 90 minutes, um, so it's a very um, a comprehensive office visit. Um, you know, I'm doing uh, a very exhaustive past medical history, family history, physical exam. I'm I'm working with them to design uh, these customized treatment protocols um, to make sure that they understand why they're doing this, to make sure that they feel that they're capable and willing to do this. Um, and to really just make sure that everybody's on board and they understand exactly what's going on and exactly what they need to do in order to become well. And so, you know, I don't work within the confines of an eight minute office visit, which is, you know, the, which is traditional in a, in a conventional medical setting. I make sure that I'm, I'm giving that patient plenty of time to tell their story. Um, you know, the word doctor comes from the Latin root docere, and docere uh, just means teacher. And so doctor as teacher. And so that is one of my guiding principles um, and one of the guiding principles of naturopathic medicine um, that, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in. I really make sure that I'm using that 60 to 90 minutes as a time for education. Um, so the patient really um, understands the, uh, you know, all of the research that may be necessary, understand all of the supplements, all the changes, so that they, they walk out feeling that they have the tools and the knowledge to be proactive in their own healthcare. care.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Um, So uh, a question that comes up a lot is, uh, with naturopathic medicine, are you covered by a lot of insurance agencies? I mean, that's a huge question here in the U.S., as you very well know, especially with this economic time.
1: Yeah, you know, it it, it varies from state to state, um, and it varies from practitioner to practitioner. Um, so here in California, you will find a lot of naturopathic, uh, naturopathic doctors do use insurance. Um, uh, I don't because I find that it limits how I practice. Um, you know, I don't want the insurance agencies, uh, to tell me how long my office visit should be, what procedures I get reimbursed for, um, And all of these things, I want to be able to practice medicine how I want to practice medicine and how that patient needs uh, me to practice medicine. And so I personally do out-of-pocket. I find that people – are willing to pay that because it's not extraordinary. Our fees are not extraordinary. And people f- actually understand the value. I find that when people actually pay a little bit of money up front out of their pocket, mm-hmm. they're willing to do the work.
0: There you go. When it's
1: coming from the insurance company, people by and large will not change their diet. They will not take their vitamins on a daily basis. They will not you know, do the protocol that's set forth. Um, and so I find that people become much more accountable. Mm-hmm. In their healthcare, when they're actually paying out of pocket, mm-hmm. so that's my personal view. Um, again, it's it's a it's a practitioner by practitioner uh, basis that 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 individuals need to check in with. Some will take insurance, some won't, either from a regulation standpoint or a philosophical stand- standpoint.
0: Right, right. Oh, wonderful. Well, <clears throat> Doctor Nick Bits, this has been just an invaluable time that we've spent together, and. As I said, this is like just a little tiny drop from that iceberg of yours and amazing. I mean, we didn't even get into bed bugs, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, next time. We didn't even get into pets. <laughs> what do you do when you have pets, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like that. I, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, we could go on and on and I, I know this. So we're just going to have to get you back on the show <laughs> for the next part.
1: Indeed. Yeah, again, it's a vast topic. Yeah. Um... You know the clinic that I work at, the Bernhoff Center for Advanced Medicine. We really do specialize in environmental medicines. We do a lot of heavy metal chelation and testing for folks, mm. um, which in itself is a whole another topic that is fascinating and and I think uh, important for people to to understand and know, um, because we're finding that heavy metal toxicity is is ubiquitous in in our population.
0: Mm. Mm. Wow. And what is the best way for people to get in contact with you or to learn a little bit more about you? Would it be your website?
1: Yeah. My personal website is drnickbits.com and that's D-R-N-I-C-K-B-I-T-Z.com. Um, and that has all of my my background, my personal philosophy, you know, all of my patient forms for first office visits, um, all of my contact information. Um, so that's probably the best resource.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time. We're really honored to have you on this show. I know we had interviewed you once before during a, a live event, uh, but it's so great to have you back. And and uh, hopefully we can have you back again and again.
1: Please, please, yeah. <laughs> It'll be the yeah. Nick
0: Bits show soon.
1: But, all right. <laughs> uh,
0: awesome. Thank you so much uh, for sharing with us today. Uh, you know, I would also like to take a moment and thank each and every one of you, our global community, for joining us and supporting us with this new platform of education and information. You know, we are always grateful for your continuous support and. You know, we look forward to hearing from you and how we can better support you and bring you information that would help, you know, help find help you find balance in your life or wherever it is you are. You know, hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, be sure to share it with your friends and family by simply telling them to come visit us at yogahub.tv. And this is episode 28. Um, and remember, join us live every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for our Magical Medical Tour, which I do believe we should get Dr. Nick Bitz on that as well. And of course, Wednesdays at this time, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for our Trinity of Life. Um, so thank you again, everyone. Thank you again, Dr. Nick Bitz, uh, for honoring us. And until next week, namaste.
1: All right, you, thank you. fun that was fun
0: it was like no we can't be ending he's like we're over the hour and i'm going no i just started more
1: (laughs) i know know, it's endless
0: it's fabulous you're just such a i knew you were a natural when we interviewed